Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome everyone to episode 26 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. I'm fighting the urge to not talk about the day or the week or weather, so we're going to talk about your body instead. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good call, I think. I was just telling you how limber I am because I've seen the osteo, so that was all we really had. Yeah, I did my stretches and then uh, now um, that's it. (laughs) I had my diaphragm worked on. Yeah. yeah. It was weird, but like a good weird. You know, yeah. when when you sort of get sounds like, oh, that's sore. A proper stretch but, or yeah, something and it feels yeah. really nice. Yeah. yeah. It was a bit like that. It makes me want to stretch my back out talking about it, actually. Yeah. I feel like I need to go do something now. Yeah, go for it. Well, what you can do is give our Patreon shout outs, or should I say shout out this week. Yes. Probably. Thank you and welcome to Jenny Kelly. It's all for you this week. Thank you, Jenny. Yes. Thank you, Jenny. We appreciate the support. Today's case is something a bit different. We're not going to give too much away up front, but it's a story that starts in China and spans all the way across the high seas to the southwest coast of Victoria, down near Geelong. of March 2003, Port of Yantai, China. Crew members loaded 5,000 tonnes of sand onto the Pongsu. All 30 of the Korean crew members then set sail for Do, North Korea, where they arrived the following day. Here, more parcels were loaded onto the ocean freighter by two additional crew members who would join the ship's voyage thereafter. One of these men was named Ta Song Wong. Wong was born in China on the 10th of October 1965. At age 10, both of his parents passed away and Wong was taken in by neighbours. Despite this, his education and stability would eventually cease after the loss of his parents and Wong became itinerant of no fixed address. He made ends meet by collecting firewood in the mountains burning it, then on selling the charcoal. By his teens, Wong had worked various jobs in baggage handling and construction before ultimately travelling to Beijing to look for work. It was here that Wong met Chu. They met at a market and Chu was kind to Wong, offered him food and money, about 100,000 yuan, which equated to about 16,000 Australian dollars at the time. Chu said this payment was to help him export some electrical equipment to Australia. Wong couldn't believe his luck and jumped at the chance to help his new friend and become wealthy in the process. Wong and Chu left Do, North Korea, on the 15th of March 2003, aboard the Pongsu, headed for Jakarta, Indonesia. On the 28th of March, the Pongsu arrived in Jakarta, and Chu and Wong loaded their parcels of electrical equipment. Then, 
they set sail for Australia, where they planned to meet three others on shore who'd help distribute the electrical goods. Just one day earlier, on the 27th of March 2003, Kaiem Teng and Ya Lam arrived at Tullamarine Airport, the main international airport servicing Melbourne in Victoria. Teng and Lam had travelled from Beijing, China, and were two of the three others who'd be helping Wong and Chu with the importation of the aforementioned electrical goods. This was both of the men's first trip to Australia, for us local inhabitants, while Tullamarine, or indeed any international airport here, is usually a bustling kind of place, Teng and Lam in all likelihood thought of the place as spacious and a breath of fresh air, literally and metaphorically. Teng, the senior of the pair by about 13 years, came from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, but his family was of Chinese descent. He'd had a hard slog up until this point in his life, Teng was married and had a son aged six, but at present his family was split up. His wife was in the USA working as a waitress and his son was living with Teng's sister back in Kuala Lumpur. Teng had always worked long and hard. As the only son in his family, there was an implied pressure for him to provide, not only for his own immediate family members but for his extended family as well. Teng left school at age 15 and immediately went to work, doing a variety of jobs, retail sales, electrical goods wholesale, labouring at a rubber plant where he eventually became a supervisor. In 1985, Tang left Malaysia for the USA in search of financial prosperity in the land of dreams, and he busted his ass working as a waiter, six days a week, 12 hours a day, raking in two to three grand a month once tips were factored in, and his food and board were covered during this time by his employer. Teng would stay in the US for 10 years, where he met his future wife and amassed savings of close to 75000 US dollars before returning to Malaysia. Here, things only went up for Teng. He married his wife and invested his savings into setting up a business for himself, working as a rubber and wood agent. So we can see Teng had an entrepreneurial flair and wanted to make something of himself. He was a hard worker, dedicated to his family and providing them all a future. But as with all things business, there's inherent risk factors, many outside of an individual's control when you consider the broader local and international economic factors. For whatever reason, be it management or factors out of Teng's control, his business failed only five years later in the year 2000. With the financial strain, Tang's wife returned to the US to find a better paid job. Tang remained in Malaysia, buying and selling clothing at market stalls for a living. It was around this time that Tang's son went to live with his sister in Kuala Lumpur because Tang's entrepreneurial flair wasn't to lie dormant for long. Although he had some recent gambling troubles and accumulated debts, Tang felt that he was on the other side of his misfortunes now. He had met the right bunch of people who had set him up with an opportunity to coordinate the import of a bulk amount of electrical equipment into Australia. Tang was the right guy for the job. He'd had the business experience and was familiar with international travel, versed in English from his decade in the USA, and he was a grinder, a hard worker. Tang's offsider, Yao Lam, was 13 years his junior. He was born in May of 1970 in Shenyang, northeast China. Unlike Tang, Lam was single, but he too had tragically lost his parents at a young age when they died in a motor vehicle accident. So he was raised, along with his sister, by their grandmother. This was until Lam found favour with a family friend at a young age. He became an itinerant worker, travelling to Cambodia and Thailand with this family friend to sell scrap metal and cars, before returning to China in his teens where he continued working in the motor trade, but he also worked additionally at restaurants. Lamb had little to no schooling, but he was streetwise and crafty, keen to make a dollar. 
He eventually moved to Cambodia, where he ended up working in restaurants, bars and the gaming industry. Lam incidentally also had some gambling woes, like Tang, but he too saw light at the end of the tunnel when he came across the opportunity to travel to Australia to assist with the importation of these electrical items. Lam was younger, able-bodied, had the street smarts and work ethic to be helpful to Tang on this business trip. So the pair, after arriving at Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne, caught either the Sky Bus or a cab to Southern Cross Station, formerly Spencer Street, and took the V-Line train to Geelong, a major regional city about one hour southwest of Melbourne's CBD. Here, they checked out a number of motels and rental car companies before returning to Melbourne. They'd make this same trip in the following days, conducting many of the same activities, before eventually setting on hiring a blue Toyota Tarago from Europe Car in Geelong. The pair then visited a camera shop in Geelong, where they purchased a camera and a set of binoculars, before going to the Sundowner Motor Inn and booking two rooms. They planned to stay there for about a week, and they did so, until their other business associate arrived. During this time, they toured local areas and soaked up some of the scenery. They checked out a rental property in Lawn, which is a location they'd mapped to be a hub for the transport of the electrical equipment once it was on shore. They contemplated swapping out the Tarago for a Pajero at one point back at Europe Car, but ultimately decided the boot space of the Tarago would be best. On the 9th of April 2003, Tang and Lam's business partner, Chin Quang Lee, arrived in Melbourne from Singapore. Lee was going to be the coordinator of sorts for this importation, assisting Tang and Lam in the distribution inland. Lee was experienced in this line of work. Although only 35, he was very well educated, having attended one of the top schools in Singapore, which was called St Joseph's Institution. Lee spoke eight different languages, and he too had lost his parents very young to tuberculosis. But after this, he was raised with some means by four of his uncles in a large house in Singapore. And it was for his uncles that Lee would eventually end up working. These guys were international exporters of electrical and household goods from China, Singapore and Thailand. Lee would finish his schooling and go on to university but this was interrupted by a conscripted military service in Singapore. Lee served two years national service with the Singapore National Army, during which time his intelligence and skills were noticed and he was promoted. Lee was also a well-behaved young man. He didn't drink, didn't do drugs or display any antisocial tendencies. So Lee's job in Australia at the behest of his uncles was to coordinate... You had Tang and Lam handling the import and delivery, and back on the Pong Su sailing from Indonesia was Wong and his friend Chu, who were the boots on the ground, or ship more accurately, handling the export to Australian shores. So this all sounds like a golden opportunity, right? Somewhat. The problem with all of this, Chloe, is that aboard the Pong Su was not electrical equipment at all, but a large commercial quantity of heroin. Lee's uncles were not electrical equipment exporters, but international drug runners. And Lee had been raised by these four so-called uncles and allegedly threatened, coerced and forced into this job. Lee, our coordinator in this deal, had been very isolated from a young age and seemingly groomed for this very task. He was told that he was indebted to these four men because they'd put a roof over his head, fed him, and paid good money for his education. In fact, Lee had run afoul of the law before, having been arrested in Copenhagen, Denmark, just three years earlier at the turn of the century. He was caught smuggling 5.5 kilograms of heroin with intent to distribute onto Danish streets. Lee a lonely young man who had no friends, no girlfriend, was well-educated both traditionally and in the art of drug running by this time. He was obviously an asset. In February 2001, his escape was engineered by those connected to him, presumably his quote-unquote uncles, by blasting open the wall of the prison in Copenhagen. He escaped from custody and was escorted to Germany and then back to Bangkok. So this in itself is a clear indication that Lee's uncles weren't just small time, 
but part of a larger and more powerful criminal syndicate. Lee tried to get out of the trade upon his extrication from Denmark. However, he was gently persuaded not to by his uncles. And we say gently, we mean shot through the leg and told the next one will be through the head. His desire to leave this all behind was viewed as a betrayal by his four supposed benefactors and Lee was subsequently ordered to aid in the importation to Australia. But this was no small time 5.5 kilos here. Aboard the Pong Su was 150 kilograms of pure heroin. Upon his arrival in Melbourne, Lee got straight to work. He bought a prepaid Optus mobile and made contact with Lam and Tang down in Geelong. Lee then met with Tang on the 13th of April at Crown Casino in Melbourne. The following day, the pair left in the blue Toyota Tarago, which Tang had earlier rented at Europe Car in Geelong. But unbeknown to both Tang and Lee, just a few days earlier on the 11th of April, the Australian Federal Police had installed a listening device within the Tarago after obtaining a warrant to do so. From there, every conversation Lee, Tang and Lam had inside the van was being monitored and listened to by federal agents. Operation Sorbet, coordinated by Federal Agent Ian McCartney, had been in full swing since both Teng and Lam had arrived on Australian shores a few weeks earlier. And I often chuckle at these operation names. Sorbet doesn't ring with authority when it comes to intercepting a high seas drug smuggling mission. But I recall hearing it a while back, though, that these operation names are randomly generated. Operating off tips from international agencies, it was said that the Pong Su had likely been under surveillance for some time by the Japanese and the US. Over the next few days, police would surveil and eavesdrop on the three smugglers as they planned to take a shipment of drugs from somewhere. How exactly they weren't sure. They knew of the Pong Su, but so far it wasn't in Australian waters. Conversations between the trio over the next couple of days indicated a level of awareness around surveillance. They spoke in code, using words such as girlfriend to refer to the heroine, Charlie to refer to the unidentified third-party purchaser of the drugs, along with aliases for one another, such as Danny, Peter, etc. There was indication during the conversations of not only awareness and complicity in what they were doing, but a degree of uncertainty and unfamiliarity with working with one another. Not everything was clear and agreed upon. In fact, communication between the trio at times seemed difficult, although they certainly got by. While Tang, Lee and Lam were the onshore party, Wong and Shu had more of a dangerous offshore role that involved disembarking the Pong Su and bringing the heroin to shore. And while this wasn't known to police at the time... It wasn't entirely by choice that these guys found themselves in this position. There were various reasons, but front and centre was fear, duress and the promise of wealth having come from nothing. Most of the earlier mentioned gambling debts Teng and Lam had gotten into, well it turned out they were in way over their heads. They'd sought out loan sharks back in Asia when they couldn't pay their gambling debts back And while it was their own doing getting themselves into that position, we know from what Lee's uncles did to him, the repercussions of defying orders would have been dire. It's not a stretch to envisage the ruthless grasp of the underworld over in those parts. Still, these guys had all willingly entered into this business venture and displayed a desire to carry out the crime. Lam and Lee had even entered the country on false passports under different names. In the days leading up to the 15th of April 2003, Tang and Lee would go back and forth between Wai River, Boggley Creek, Geelong and Lawn. They stayed at various accommodations, the Comfort Inn Eastern Sands Motel, the Grand Pacific Hotel 
and they visited a real estate agent in Lawn and booked accommodation for a couple of days after the 15th of April. They wanted a week, but couldn't secure it, so the two days had to suffice. By this time, police had established from conversations that the delivery of the drugs was going to be on the 15th. Lamb, in the meantime, headed into South Melbourne and hired a blue Ford Focus with a fake ID that Lee had brought into the country. It was also evident from conversations that Lee had taken a dislike to Lamb. He thought he was a bad guy and didn't seemingly care if he ended up in a spot of bother. Despite this, Lee did offer words of advice to Lamb should the shipment be late. He told him not to risk picking it up because it likely meant something had happened by way of law enforcement interception. Tang was seemingly more neutral but wanted the job done. But these guys were very paranoid, and rightly so, because federal agents from Operation Sorbet were watching their every move. In what had begun as a four-person investigation was now commanding a huge amount of AFP resources. Surveilling these three guys and preparing to potentially pursue and board the Pong Su when it arrived. Around 50 agents were engaged in this operation by this point, and this would all end up going down in the evening of April 15, 2003. Coordinator Lee and his older counterpart Tang were observed going back and forth once again between areas such as Griffiths Gully Jetty in Geelong, Boggley Creek, and their hotel, the Grand Pacific. Lamb, in his blue Ford Focus, was seemingly on the move, almost in a scout-like role, as the Pongsu appeared clearly in Australian waters. It had indeed made its voyage from Indonesia weeks earlier, around the western side of Australia's coast, and reached the southernmost part of Victoria. And this region is not far away from where Elmer Crawford drove his car over the cliff's edge at Lockhart Gorge back in 1970 with his deceased family in the back, a case we covered just a few weeks ago now. We're obviously 30-odd years later in this story, but the terrain is much the same. Rugged coast and beaches, largely inaccessible, and that was probably part of the allure for a smuggling ship to make their stop in this region. But the Pongsu had been lingering in the waters off the coast all day and had been visible to the residents of nearby Wai River. Locals Andrew, Carolyn and Stephen Batson all observed the ship looking somewhat lost at sea, and they even joked that it might be a people or drug smuggling vessel. That joke was much closer to the truth than they realised. Coming into the evening, around 7 to 8pm, the deck of the Pong Su was illuminated and people could be seen moving around. This was the intended time of delivery, but as is often the case, things wouldn't go to plan. And this was probably due to a number of factors, but the weather, for starters, would have been a big one. This area, as we know, is wild and blustery at the best of times. You throw in a low-pressure system, a blanket of thick rain and penetrating thunderstorm, and things become even more treacherous. Due to these conditions, federal agents attempting surveillance found things extremely difficult to see when the actual delivery would take place. But they didn't have things half as tough as Wong and Chu, departing the Pong Su in a high-powered dinghy, speeding to shore with the heroin. This was around midnight by this point, and they were headed towards Boggley Creek to meet Lamb. With plans delayed by the weather and the Pong Su being nervously close to shore amongst the rocks and coral reef, Wong and Chu disembarked the Pong Su in their dinghy to head for shore, 150 kilograms of pure heroin on board. As the pair got within a couple of hundred metres of the shore, the dinghy was thrown high into the air amongst the choppy waves. One of the six packages of heroin, about 25 kilograms worth, was lost overboard. But then the dinghy's fuel line failed. Wong and Chu were at the mercy of the ocean, waves crashed into the dinghy and it flipped, capsizing the vessel and hurling the pair into the dark cold waters. Chu didn't survive. He drowned and his body washed up on shore shortly thereafter. Wong struggled to dry land with the remaining bundles of heroin, which were wrapped in blue plastic and black netting to waterproof them. Lam met Wong at the shoreline and it seemed the plan was for him to take the bundles, but for whatever reason, he wasn't able to do that. 
he ended up hiding three of the bundles in nearby bushland, along with disposing of a number of personal items. He placed a call to Teng and Lee, who came down in the Tarago. Police observed them scooping up the packages and throwing them into the rear of the van before heading back to their accommodation. Meanwhile, Lamb headed off in the opposite direction, towards Colac, along Skeens Creek Road. But neither of them took Wong. He was left on his own at Boggley Creek to fend for himself. Lamb left him with a GPS device he'd previously used. Maybe this was meant to help him find his way, who knows. He also left a pair of binoculars that were said to be the ones he'd purchased in Geelong a couple of weeks back. The police made observations of the Tarago up close overnight in the car park of the Grand Pacific Hotel and determined the packages were inside. At around 7am the following morning, Tang and Lee drove out of the hotel to head towards Lawn, but they didn't get far. Federal police intercepted the Tarago and arrested the pair. Lamb too was picked up just a few hours later driving his Ford Focus rental car along the Princess Highway towards Melbourne. Lamb had purchased a ticket back to China via Thailand when he'd rented the Focus, but this wasn't found in it. Instead, that ticket would be located in bushland near Boggley Creek by police the following day. Along with the ticket, police also discovered a trembling, soaking wet Ta Song Wong hiding in the bushes. He had on him Lamb's binoculars, GPS and a mobile phone. The police also discovered the body of Chu, whose real identity remains a mystery to this day, washed up under a pile of kelp near the inflatable dinghy on the shoreline. So the police had a number of things linking the offenders here and connecting them to the crime, but there was still the problem of the missing heroin. What had been discovered wasn't reflecting the same amount they'd gathered from intelligence. But we still had the problem of the missing narcotics that we believe Mr Lamb was in possession of at some stage. We had to find it. It was imperative that that drug be discovered before someone else got their hands on it. The night the drugs came ashore and were handed over to the shore party, Teng and Lee headed back to Lawn to their hotel. Lamb had headed in the opposite direction. Our surveillance operative attempted to follow Lamb, however he was using what's known as anti-surveillance measures. As a result, the agents dropped off Lamb, but they knew the direction he had travelled. Now an extensive search along a 25-kilometre stretch of road and bushland was being undertaken. It took a few days, but eventually we won. We found the drugs in a small trench covered in leaves and other trees obvious that these were the narcotics that originally came ashore with the Pong Su. They had the same wrapping, the same blue tarpaulin, the fishnets and the black rubber banding to hold it all together. To see those drugs to be found and seized was pretty gratifying. It was very, very satisfying to, to take possession of it and take it out of circulation. The total weight of the heroin packages was 123.32 kilograms, close to 150 if you factor the one that they lost overboard. It was suggested by federal agent Buxton that amounted to approximately $160 million in street value. The packaging of the drugs gave police a clear idea of where they'd come from. At least it did at first. The packages were stamped with a distinctive red seal featuring two lions and the words Double UO Globe brand. This was said to be a well-known brand of heroin that originated from the area known as the Golden Triangle. This region is one of the largest opium-producing regions in the world. It was the largest until overtaken by Afghanistan at the turn of the century. It's situated at the intersection of the Thailand, Laos and Myanmar borders. The term Golden Triangle was actually come up with by the CIA, and it's a vast area of about 950,000 square kilometres, quite mountainous in spots, and the Mekong River is also nearby. So that's what the branding suggested anyway. But later tests of the heroin would suggest it came from a different region. We'll come back to that because we need to tackle what happened to the Pong Su itself. Obviously the shore party had been apprehended, the heroin seized. What of the ocean freighter? Well, it wasn't going down without a fight, or at least a chase. So, the AFP and Customs, as I understand, were pursuing to begin with. 
But when it became evident the Pong Su wasn't communicating or complying with orders, the big guns of the Australian Defence Force were called in. You have been told no name. Warned numerous times. Are you altering course back to Eden Cordova? No, no, he's making a run for it. Come Pong on. Su, if you do not stop your vessel or alter course, we will stop your vessel or the Australian government will stop your, your vessel using any method available. We were tasked to follow the ship and to cover it. Meantime, the people back in headquarters were getting the people most skilled and best equipped to do the actual takeout of the of the vessel. Motor vessel Pong Su, this is Australian warship. Rig your pilot ladder, starboard side now. General, the, at the present now, my crew members now sleeping now, so waiting some moment. No, sir. Please wake them up. I intend to board you. Over. The crew of the HMAS Stewart were planning for their Easter holidays when they got the call to take up their warship out to sea in pursuit of the Pongsu. At daybreak, on Friday the 18th of April, the assault commenced. Reading from a Sydney Morning Herald article here entitled Seized, the ship they hunted for days, the scintillating account reads as follows. The steward came over the horizon at 27 knots, full speed, spray all over, with a 5-inch gun on the bow, Seahawk helicopter in the air adding to the noise, and suddenly ropes drop and men are dropping down before the ropes even hit. Special Air Service troopers, 4th Battalion commandos and Navy clearance divers from the HMAS Stewart board the 3,000-tonne Pongsu just after dawn, assaulting it from an RAN helicopter and two inflatables. Sliding untethered 90 feet down with only gloves, the Special Forces soldiers hit the deck and stormed the bridge as other soldiers in two rubber boats moved in from the Stewart threw grappling hooks and ladders onto the ship and scrambled aboard. Within minutes, the crew was under guard in the mess hall and the soldiers were searching the ship. None of the detainees put up a fight. If there was any incriminating evidence, it had all been thrown overboard or burned. The Pong Su, whose communications to that point had been non-compliant, quickly wilted and surrendered under the might of the HMAS Stewart and the lethal group of SAS, commandos and Navy clearance divers. The freighter, which was of North Korean origin, was quickly found to have a lot of anti-Australian sentiment on board, messages about fighting to the death, to the last man, and Australia being the enemy, that kind of thing. But the crew on board put up no resistance at all when boarded by the Defence Forces. So the AFP could board now and get to work on their investigation. The HMAS Stewart was sent from Sydney to intercept the Pong Su. Once it made contact with the Pong Su, it sent a helicopter where SAS soldiers uh, boarded the ship and made it safe for the AFP to go on board. It now became another crime scene for us to search to try and link the evidence on board the Pong Su with the rest of the evidence we had seized during the investigation. Okay, the time is uh, 11.52 on Sunday the 20th of April 2003. The thorough search of the ship showed us that it was most probably a smuggling ship for the purpose of actually moving narcotics in and around the world. Water tanks on the ship had been converted to fuel tanks, basically giving the ship a greater capacity to travel without stopping to take on fuel. A huge amount of food had been found on the ship, also allowing the crew to survive for some time without going to port. The reason for this would be obvious. By not having to go to port, especially in Australia, they wouldn't come to the attention of authorities that may be wanting to check the ship. A systematic search began this morning. Every room, cupboard and panel. Specialised x-ray and chemical equipment taken aboard. Even the ship's filter and vents were checked. We were given a running shoe from the beach near the dead body, which had a number of paint stains on it, and we were asked if there was any possibility that we could match paint from the shoe with any paint found on the Pong Su. Paint samples and scrapings from the deck of the ship were analysed and compared. 
We were able to match a number of features of the paint, not conclusively, not 100%, but very, very likely that the paint on the shoe was the same as found on the deck of the Pong suit. When the dead person was found, he wasn't wearing shoes. The raid on board the Pong suit followed the seizure of 50 kilograms of heroin off Victoria's southwest coast. Another 75 kilograms of the drug was discovered hidden in bushes, a total street value of $164 million. The ship's captain, chief mate and chief engineer were today ordered to stand trial after a magistrate found they were in a position to assist in the drug run. A crew member who allegedly brought the heroin to shore and three other others accused of collecting it will also stand trial. Tang, Lam, Lee and Wong were in custody to be charged and tried, but the entire crew of approximately 30 aboard the Pong Su were also arrested and charged with narcotic trafficking. 27 of them were ultimately let go. There wasn't enough to hold them, but four of the ship's senior crew were held, charged and set to face trial. These four guys were Dong Song Choi, 61, the ship's political secretary, Man Sung Song, 65, the ship's captain, Man Ji Ri, 51, the first officer, and Ju Chon Ri, 51, the chief engineer. One of these dudes was said to be an official of the governing Korean Workers' Party, which linked the drug ship and heroin on board to Kim Jong-il's government. But this angle wasn't pursued in a formal legal setting. Instead, it was targeted at the four officials on board the ship, the individuals. In this legal setting, it was presented as a Southeast Asian drug syndicate as being responsible for the importation, not the North Korean government. Either way, the case against the crew members was weak and charges were ultimately dropped. It couldn't be proven that they had implicit knowledge of the drugs being on board, although that's hard to believe. There were conflicting reports of where the drugs were actually loaded too. Some reports stated in North Korea, some in Jakarta. So this didn't help the case either. The crew left court free men and enjoyed a succulent Chinese meal with their legal team in Melbourne thereafter before they were eventually deported. The case against the shore party of Wong, Tang, Lee and Lam was much stronger, however. There was a lot of evidence linking them to the drugs, the importing and the subsequent plans to distribute to this unidentified third party known only as Charlie. And it turned out that half of these guys were using aliases, if not all of them. Evidence suggested Lee was actually named Wee Kui Tan. Wong and Tang were said to have other potential names too, Lam even, On the balance of probabilities, the judge said he couldn't be sure any of them were who they said they were. But either way, all four pleaded guilty, Wong to importation and Tang, Lee and Lam to aiding and abetting. They were subsequently sentenced. Tang got 22 years with a non-parole period of 15. In 2009, this was reduced by two years on appeal. Lam, 23 years with a non-parole period of 16. In 2009, reduced again on appeal by one year. Lee, 24 years, a non-parole period of 16. 2009, his appeal was dismissed. And Wong, 23 years with a non-parole period of 16. And his was reduced further on appeal in 2009 as well by one year. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But now we get to the North Korea connection. So legally, this was not pursued as such, but politically and in the media, it was certainly a dominant topic of discussion. The North Korean ambassador in Australia was questioned directly about the incident and denied any involvement. 
But Foreign Minister at the time, Alexander Downer, wasn't convinced. Have you been expelled from Australia? Why? Was your government involved in drug smuggling into Australia? No. Not at all? Not at all. Of course, criminal elements do this from all over the world, um, but uh, if there was um, proof that another government or the political party, which is the governing party of another country, is involved in drug trafficking, that would be a matter of complete outrage. And if we go back to this time, this was a time of heightened and strained relations, which would only get worse once Donald Trump took office, between North Korea and the West. Not just the West, Japan and Taiwan too had long alleged that North Korea smuggled drugs into their countries, But North Korea's nuclear abilities and WMDs were high on the topic list at this time too. Intelligence agencies across the globe also supported the assertion that North Korea has a prevalent drug cultivation program and manufacturers and traffics commercial quantities of opium and amphetamines worldwide to bolster its stricken economy. These analysts suggest that the main sources of the country's income indeed come from narcotics trafficking, missile sales and counterfeit currency. And it's a very strange thing to dive into North Korea and get an idea of what goes on there. There's a couple of videos done by Vice and one by the New York Times you can view online for a greater insight into it, but it's quite bizarre. The propaganda videos show a country in love with its leaders, formerly Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il and now Kim Jong-un, and a hatred for the USA and a will to wage war at a moment's notice. Access to the country is strictly limited, and it's very controlled when there. No computer, phones, high-tech devices of any kind. The occasional point-and-shoot camera is allowed, that's about it. But the tours visitors get taken on are completely staged and bizarre. You only see what they want you to see and what they have organised. There's a stark contrast in some images of the city of Pyongyang that you see in the North Korean videos. In recent times, much of the grey city has been painted in blues, greens and pinks, apparently at the younger Kim Jong-un's behest. But the country has few sources for its income and has suffered greatly from international sanctions. This is not particularly prevalent in Pyongyang, where the residents who live there are seemingly well-off and cared for. You need permission to live in Pyongyang. Not just any North Korean resident can go there. Rurally, there's primitive farming, scarce electricity, and reports of poverty and starvation. Most of the country's coin seemingly props up their exalted leader and their massive military. A documentary that ran on the ABC the best part of 15 years ago now hosted by reporter Marianne Jolly, details how the North Korean connection was prevalent in the Pongsu incident. The USA was certainly sure of it and disappointed the Australian legal system didn't prosecute the ship's crew. But now we're going to play an extended clip from this, which goes into the investigation of the North Korean involvement in not just the Pongsu incident, but the broader issue of the government's alleged criminality and drug trafficking. Following the trail of the Pongsu drug smuggling operation, we headed to Macau, a former Portuguese colony. It's now part of China, North Korea's greatest ally. It's been called the Casablanca of Asia, Notorious as a centre for organised crime, triads, gambling and murder. But what's perhaps less well known about Macau is that for decades it's been the centre of North Korean illicit activity. On the night that the Pongsu allegedly dropped off the heroin, the accused smugglers made 18 calls to a Macau mobile phone. Macau was the only window out, really, for, for, for the North Koreans, so they set up... Steve houses. Vickers is the former head of Hong Kong Police Intelligence. A lot of their clandestine operations had a Macau end to them. But primarily, banking, funding, particularly trading companies were, 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 established, were established here. And, of course, the proximity to the casinos and, frankly, to the ability to launder money has always been a factor. Mm. 
Macau police monitor highly secretive North Korean companies. High on their list, Zokwang Trading, a direct arm of the infamous Bureau 39. Zokwang Trading, again a front for the external service of the uh, intelligence service of the, of the North Koreans. Confidential police documents reveal Zokwang's personnel actually work for the North Korean government and boast diplomatic passports. When the Chinese took over in 1999, Zokwang suspended its operations, but three years later, it was back in business. If you have a state-run entity that, that trades all over the world, this is a very good cover uh, and a very good opportunity for a foreign drug op- trafficking organisation to to, to piggyback on. Yeah, they're here, but they're not open. In the same building, we went looking for Pak Jia Byong, Zokwang's chief representative. Macau police list this apartment as his home address. Arrested in 1994 for trying to deposit 250,000 US dollars in fake notes into a Macau bank, he was released because of diplomatic immunity. The man at home, who looks remarkably like the photograph of Mr. Pack, claimed to know nothing of Zok Wang or its staff. Seems that when you're talking to people in Macau about North Korean companies here, that they're very scared to actually tell you anything about it. Why is that the case? Well, um, as I said earlier, it's a criminal regime. It's organised crime. It operates on a big scale. They're violent people. Um, I think it makes common sense that, 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 that people would not want to cross, cross, these, cross these syndicates like anywhere else in the world. For more than a quarter of a century, Zokwang Trading Company has been linked to crime and terrorist acts. The 1983 attempted assassination of the South Korean president in Rangoon that killed 21 people. The 1987 bombing of a Korean airliner, 115 people died. Numerous smuggling operations, cigarettes, drugs and counterfeit money. Uh, the danger is that we, we, we focus on the ones that are well known and forget about the ones that, uh, the ones that aren't. Zokwang may have the profile, but Macau police say at least 16 other North Korean enterprises also operate here. We probably can't see all the other companies that they've got registered, which would probably change names on a, on a case-by-case basis to deal with any given, uh, any given program. From Macau, it's an easy hop to Pyongyang, North Korea's own airline, Air Koryo, flies in and out. Scheduled twice a week, but arriving whenever, the flights have a history of carrying illicit goods, money and gold. When I was former head of criminal intelligence, we would be always interested in what was on those flights and what was coming in and out. I suspect the great leaders' expensive bottles of scotch and other items may also be shipped in and out through these means. Um, Certainly, it's, it's, it's something that people keep an eye on, but my fear is that the, 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 real, the real big issues are all by sea. Kim Jong-il's regime goes to extraordinary lengths to hide its involvement in shady ventures. Singapore, one of the world's busiest harbours, it was here that the Pong Su swapped the North Korean flag for one from the Pacific nation of Tuvalu. North Korean-owned ships have been placed on uh, foreign flag of convenience registers. All, I suspect, for the same reason. It helps camouflage the North Korean connection in cases where the North Korean government uh, finds it politic to do that. I don't think it's a disguising. I, I, should, I should say that they are trying to make themselves more convenient to do it. Yu Jing Tae is a Singapore shipping agent with strong ties to North Korea. When the Pong Su was looking for a new flag, he recommended the Tuvalu flag. Why did they want to register under another flag? That's very simple, because Australian government do not have any ties with uh, North Korean. If they're going to sell in the NK, most likely 
Austrian government will not allow them to come in. But Australia does have diplomatic relations with North Korea, and North Korean ships are permitted in Australian waters, providing they have a legitimate reason and announce their arrival. The Pong Su failed on both counts. To understand the real reason why the Pong Su opted for a Tuvalu flag, you need to look at who controls the flag. A Singapore-based company, International Ship Registries, has a licence to sell the Tuvalu flag. But this Singapore company is managed by Sovereign Ventures. Sovereign Ventures has substantial mining interests in North Korea and, coincidentally, is Eugene Tay's former employer. They would be uh, approved by the North Korean government as both... Uh, their agent uh, uh, for shipping and also uh, given privileged access uh, to explore for oil uh, in, uh, in North Korea. Sovereign Ventures has a history of camouflaging North Korean ships. For almost a decade, it ran the notorious Cambodian shipping registry. In December 2002, Scud missiles were found hidden aboard the North Korean vessel, the So Sun, registered in Cambodia, heading to Yemen. The North Koreans, it is thought, used their ships on the Cambodian register, flying the Cambodian flag, to uh, smuggle uh, uh, missiles and other armed shipments abroad. So make of that what you will. My initial thoughts in research was that these guys, the Shore Party I'm referring to, had gotten mixed up with organised crime, the likes of Chinese triads, and become indebted and were subsequently coerced into the importation. But as I went along, this North Korean link seemed quite plausible with many facts to support the contention. Whatever the case, what became of the old Pongsu ship itself, you might ask? Well, it ended up in the millionaire's row known as the Finger Wharf in Sydney, becoming an eyesore for the likes of Russell Crowe and John Laws. It was moved to Chowder Bay, where it then became an equally annoying site for the likes of Steve Price and Gay Waterhouse. $2,500 per day it was costing taxpayers to maintain the vessel, and it sat there for three years, until in March 2006, when it was ultimately destroyed. The 4,000-tonne vessel was towed out to sea about 140 kilometres off the New South Wales south coast. An F-111 jet fighter lined up the vessel and bombed it. That syndicate won't be doing that again. That ship won't be doing it again. It's at the bottom of the ocean, so the results were very good. I think it did send a very strong message right around the world that Australia won't put up with this. So it was good target practice at the end of the day, and after $2.5 million worth of maintenance, it was blown to smithereens to send a message to the rest of the world. Whatever you make of that, the police, federal authorities and defence force were praised for their efforts in not only stopping the importation and apprehending the offenders, but also the pursuit of the Pong Su and boarding and arresting the crew. There's always going to be contention around that, particularly the way some of the crew were processed, there was quite a bit around that and how they were not questioned enough, more rushed into the processing. But by and large, I think we can agree the boots on the ground and indeed those making the calls did a great job. Unlike some examples we've seen in recent times, referring back to Burke Street specifically there. But that's it. That's the case of the Pong Su. So where this happened really shocked me. Why River Geelong and the coastal towns around it seems so close to home. I've been there, I've walked that coastline and I'm not naive enough to think that this kind of thing is uncommon but to hear about it and have so much context and detail in my mind is somehow more shocking. Um, somehow a drug bust on this scale just seems like something that shouldn't happen somewhere I'm familiar with and I guess that's thanks to the work of the police day in and day out that stop drugs from being trafficked and dealt where they can. And that's the overwhelming thing I keep thinking of in this case. 
the impact that that amount of heroin would have had on the community. I'm pretty glad it never made it here and I'm pretty glad that there are police units and teams dedicated to stopping drugs coming into the country, as I said before. That's pretty much my thoughts on that. So, Sean, yours? Well, the North Korean thing got me with this. I found it fascinating and ended up watching the Vice docos about it. There was a multi-parter on North Korean labour camps, which are in existence today, shocking to think. I think back to World War II with terminology like that. But anyhow, Russia is where a lot of these camps are. It's crazy. Uh, Great job by our intelligence services and federal authorities in stopping this. I couldn't help but have a bit of empathy for the four guys to an extent. I mean, they still willfully did what they did, so it's not overwhelming, that empathy. But, you know, when you hear about their backgrounds, there's no doubt there were mitigating or aggravating factors for them to be involved in this. They were all essentially pawns of a a larger agenda. But I'd like to know who Charlie was. uh, It was nice to talk about something different this week, Chloe, other than murder, murder, murder. So... That's it from me. Yeah, true. Um, although potentially disastrous outcomes and, you know, people did die, no children, no murder. It feels kind of a bit lighter this week, which yeah, I don't know what that says. Mm. Um, but moving on to happy thoughts. What's your happy thought this week? My happy thought is this coming weekend. Well, this will be coming out on Sunday, so the following weekend. Yep. Uh, it's grand final weekend here in yep. Victoria, which is very exciting. Not so much for the football for me, so I don't really follow it, but we do get a public holiday down here. So <laughs> yes. we're making the most of that. Uh, we did. Thank you, Dan Andrews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, What's yours, Chloe? Mine is, um, it may or may not come as a surprise to anyone that I am an emo at heart. So <laughs> I grew up <laughs> listening to that kind of music and Still love it. Still essentially 90% of my music is that. Um, and Blink-182 released a new album today and I really like it. Yeah, I heard a little bit of it. It's really good. Yeah. It's, you know, there's more vocals from the new guy they brought in because Tom DeLonge's off fighting aliens. And <laughs> I always thought that Blink couldn't be Blink without him, but it was, I'm really into it. Tom DeLonge's off in North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually made a council with the US government. It's crazy. Look, it's full on. But okay. yeah, he's doing, he's quit all music to do this full on alien council for to find wow. life in other planets or universes or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, so on the, that note. The, the new album sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you do have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast. And we're on Instagram under True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, ad-free regular episodes case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well and apparently helps people do their school assignments, according yes. to one reviewer this week. So, right, the Arthur Brown episode in particular. So yeah. that was good to see. <laughs> Interesting assignment, but nonetheless, five-star reviews help the world. <laughs> yeah, it's come a long way from Of Mice and Men back in... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> content's expanded. Absolutely. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Appreciate it, and we'll catch you all next time. Thank you. Bye. get um like arrested by North Korea somehow by just saying things about them, are we? No one in North Korea is allowed to listen to podcasts, so true. Kim Jong un would. But, but probably. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.